2: Hello and welcome to the Back Half Podcast with me, Tom. And me, Kate. Today we are going to talk about a harrowing incident in both Kate and mine's lives over the past week, which was watching the 1984 BBC TV film Threads, in which Nuclear Apocalypse comes to Sheffield. We'll be joined by um, Jude Rogers, who's writing about that for us for the magazine usually I try and get Claire my wife to come and watch these things with us but I actually made her stay in the study
3: so you knew it was going to be about as bad
2: half, about half an hour in Claire wandered in and said um, shall I join you and I said mm, no, maybe not <laughs>
3: I watched it on Friday night which is the most depressing thing so I was in bed with a laptop between like I think 10 and midnight on Friday so it kicked off the weekend I think I was drinking soup from a cup <laughs> I was like, God's sake why do you do this to yourself but, um, but then to
2: cheer ourselves up
3: Oh, we went to see *Atonia* last night. <laughs> very, very small screen, considering it's an Oscar-nominated film in a cinema that's uh, currently being refurbished. And has. Cinema
2: World <laughs> Leicester Square. I did think, like, what, as a tourist, you kind of come to London's Leicester Square. To- catch the latest movie and then it was just um to
3: get tarpaulin
2: lined with cardboard and <laughs>
3: this is the one that used to be the empire the great big uh premiere one and yeah it's just been covered in crap but they can't obviously they can't afford to close it while it's being refurbished <laughs> it's just business as usual so yes so this is uh the film for which margot robbie is nominated for best actress and it's the story of tonya harding and nancy kerrigan ice heroes of the early 1990s, something that didn't really make its way through to Britain, perhaps, as it, as it did in America, where it was a huge scandal and a source of much national gossip.
2: And finally, we will have our non anniversary as usual, but you will have to listen on to find out what that's about.
3: So we have a very special guest in our mouldy basement this week, Jude Rogers. Hello. here with us. Hello, Jude.
4: It's very appropriate being in a mouldy basement surrounded by things that could possibly uh, you know, block out a nuclear fallout, or, or maybe not. That's I true.
3: We know. could
2: probably construct an inner core or refuge from, <laughs> from these uh, these cardboard boxes. Yeah,
3: there. there's a cardboard box leaning up at a 30 degree angle at the moment <laughs> against a wall. Um, all this being, of course, because Jude has been working on a long read for us, which is coming out on March the 2nd, about threads which is the famous and only screened twice on terrestrial television um, Vision of the Nuclear Apocalypse by Mick Jackson that was put out by the BBC in 1984. And Jude has been digging through the fallout to find (laughs) out about uh, the the making of this show and and all the background and everything that led towards it. So, I mean, did you, what was your knowledge of this (laughs) programme growing up? Because this was a kind of legendary thing and people couldn't see it, could they? Yeah,
4: so I was six in 1984 and I didn't see it. I came across it, like sometime in the late '90s, um, probably some evening in a friend's house. Um, a friend had got you know, taped three times, taped VCR copy of it or something. I didn't have all of it. I remember just seeing the first, you know, half an hour of it, and basically it starts in a very recognizable kitchen sink drama. Fashion. The script's by Barry Hines, who famously wrote *Kestrel for a Knave*, which was adapted into *Kes*, which might give you some clue that all might not end well. But it's (laughs) set in set in Sheffield. He's from uh, North Yorkshire, and the rhythms of the language are just—you're in there. You're absolutely in there. You're with, you know, you're basically being taken through the lives of some families who have, you know, going through their own domestic dramas, but in the background the radio keeps playing and you keep seeing newspaper um, newspapers in shops with headlines and obviously something's going on internationally that nobody's really paying attention to. And I, when I was writing this piece, I, I thought, right, I'm going to check how many minutes in the bomb actually goes off, which is 46 minutes. And it's so excruciatingly tense and slow. And you know what's coming, but you're just watching these people getting on with their lives and starting to notice, you know, there's a, there's one point, to, uh, uh, the daughter of the Kemp family which is one of the families puts a glass of milk down and just looks at the radio there's little chilling moments like that and obviously more chilling now than it was maybe 10-15 years ago because you know you think of your own lives now you know I think of the mornings when I'm preparing my son's Weetabix and I've got Radio 4 on in the background and I'm going Okay. Yeah. So yeah, it's been a fun January um, and February uh, writing writing this piece, you know, in the darkest time of year with lots of exciting news headlines.
3: It's been it's been very jolly. What do we know about the political kind of events that led to the you know, for instance, you mentioned in your piece the the Panorama episode that was talking about the Protect and Survive films, which in fact were not were not broadcast were they the protect and survive films no. the famous ones we all know about about yeah. you know leaning a door up and covering up your bodies and stuff yeah
4: so kind of very telescope version they were made in 1975 so these wow. were, public information, they were films. public information films made by richard taylor animations a company loads of us who grew up in the 80s 70s 80s will remember they did charlie says Um, they did lots of beautiful quite you know, strangely eerie kind of public information films. You know, at the time, I, I interviewed one of the animators on it, which was very exciting, finding him. You know, he was very young when he did the Protect and Survive films, only 27. And he um, was looking at, you know, was basically knew that they had to translate the, the messages they were given from the COI very simply for every audience. Because if they were shown, this was going to happen or this was very likely to happen. So 1975, you know, it's a strange time because obviously we're still in the midst of the Cold War. Um, but the Civil Defence Corps was disbanded in Britain in 1968, and these films were made and um, sent around the country to local government commissioners. So there was a recognition in that that you know, yeah. there had to be something just in case, but there wasn't any real architecture, any structure beyond that to support that. The Panorama documentary, If the Bomb Drops, that was made in late '79, early 1980 explore that um issue of the lack of civil defense kind of plans if this could happen and this was made uh, not long after reagan was elected um its editor roger bolton who i interviewed for the piece had been in america they'd made a program called rearming america Um, and he'd start to think about the implications of this of reagan's plans for military expansion within the uk um obviously you know missile bases and as we go on through the early 1980s You know, again, I don't remember the time, but I remember images on TV of, you know, Green Common, obviously, and uh, just these news events in the background, which is, I think, why it makes watching Threads now really chilling, because you're, if you're of a generation, if you're in your 30s, 40s, because it's this vague memory that's crystallising in a different way now. In March 1980, the films were shown for the first time on if the bomb drops. They were Um,
2: leaked, right? I mean, these weren't designed to be shown only in case of an impending or imminent nuclear attack.
4: Absolutely. Roger McIntosh, the animator, signed the Official Secrets Act. I spoke to Roger Lim from the Radiophonic Workshop, who I mentioned briefly in the piece, and um, he had to hand over the jingles in an alley. You know, It was all very <laughs> secretive, incredibly secretive. Um, the yeah, scary spooky jingle sound. Yeah, but I had it confirmed by um, the team, um, the Panorama team, that the, a local government commissioner had leaked these two Producer.
3: And a 29 year old Paxman presented that. 29 year old Paxman. It was
4: kind of very strange just watching very young Paxman. What strikes me as really interesting and is a kind of thread, no pun intended, through the piece is a lot of the people making these films and documentaries were pretty young. Hmm. Paxman was 29 and presented, he goes around the country, there's a bit where he's in a helicopter talking about the effects of a bomb. Robert Harris was one of the researchers on it who was. Quite young himself, in his thirties. Roger Bolton was in his um, mid-thirties, so you know, relatively young. And one thing I thought was really interesting that Roger Bolton said was, you know, this was a new generation that had grown up after the Second World War. So didn't, um, weren't like members of the uh, the government or uh, uh, structures of power at the time who still thought of, you know, we must listen to authority, we must do what these disembodied voices tell us, you know, to, to do this. They were saying, no, we're children of the 60s. Mm. We want to ask questions. And there had been this growing distrust of government and various structures in the 70s, which led to this kind of bravery within the BBC, which, again, is quite interesting when you think of the BBC yeah. now and, what the, you know, BBC is still making great documentaries. But then there was a real a more of a tension about it and the BBC did lots of you know, the BBC decided to broadcast these protective so Survive you talk- films, which um were you know, they shouldn't. They were could have could have been locked up. And yeah. they were
2: incredibly the thing that struck me watching them for the first first time, I, I watched them when we discussed um the animated film When the Wind Blows on this podcast um a few a few weeks ago. Um and on the D V D extra they have the full Protect and Survive um series and I watched them and it gets it's incredibly specific. It's it starts mm. with building these shelters which is what you'd expect, but then it goes through it, it kind of goes through to the logical conclusion to what you do with your dead family member, yeah. how you cover them with plastic, how you write their name and address and Wrap tag them. them. In
4: polythene. Yeah.
2: <laughs> and then if they've been in the house for more than 5 days, yeah. remove them to a patch of earth outside and, you know, cover yeah. them cover them with earth and await await further identification. Mark the grave. On. Mark <laughs> the grave. Yeah. So it's kind of presented obviously very coolly and calmly in a kind of don't panic mm. uh, best of british style but um increasingly horrific as, as the yeah. series goes on
3: the the thing that struck me was the the destabilizing thing about the way threads is made is that you have the drama unfolding and then you have these punctuations of this this clipped government kind of voice it, mm. like, as tom says delivering um hopeless messages in mm. quite a rational way so you get the entire peacetime resources of the British health service would be unable to cope with even the single bomb that has hit Sheffield. Yeah. And I was wondering what was was Shreds a protest film? Basically, was it was it something that was just saying there is nothing we can do? It was absolutely a protest film. You know, Mick Jackson made that very clear. Um,
4: Mick Jackson, who made Mick, the Bodyguard. Mick Jackson made the Bodyguard. <laughs> that was one of the most exciting things I found out very early on, because I was obsessed with the Bodyguard when I was, you know. 16 um, and my mother was in love with kevin costner yeah that's very odd so he, he, yeah he, it was absolutely a protest film and um, he was um, a science documentary maker for the bbc beforehand he'd actually been recruited into the bbc just after the war game was banned from bbc which is the famous 1965 um, documentary about the effects of a nuclear bomb which is the first film to really display in any meaningful you know and a very brutal way what could happen Although um, well, the BBC didn't broadcast it, um, it won an Oscar a year later, but um, he was, he entered the BBC in this atmosphere, but uh, many years later after, um, if the bomb drops came out and there were no repercussions, there was a more of a sense of bravery within the BBC about tackling that issue. He made a QED in uh, 1982 called A Guide to Armageddon, which is on YouTube, and um, if you're interested in any of this stuff, I'd strongly recommend watching it because it is very, it it really is an amazing foreshadowing of threads, you know, this kind of dispassionate voice, just saying very simply and factually, this is what will happen. And he had to pitch it as, this is factual. This is, you know, this is not political one of the arguments against the war game was it was political and obviously it's the bbc you can't be political but he was very dispassionate and then from that they decided we need to do something more than this so um yeah threads is absolutely a protest film he was very much energized as well by a 1983 us film called the day after which is broadcast in america in november 1983 watched by 250 million people um and apparently by ronald reagan who was like oh it's in a film uh this is interesting um but um that is a very um a much more sanitized version of what happens in threads there are families going about their daily lives but um after the bomb drops you know there's a hospital that has working electricity and this really angered uh mick jackson so they were in pre-production already at this stage but you know he wanted to show how you know how real it could be and you know threads is two hours it's it's relentless. Yeah. It's relentless.
2: Given you were talking about Mick Jackson's documentary background, just for those who don't know, can yes. you just say something very briefly about the form of Threads? Because it is yes. it is a kind of proto docudrama form. It mixes it mixes the two media, doesn't it? Yeah,
4: and he he went he set out to do that. He wanted to create a new form because he didn't like how the day after was basically a made for TV disaster movie. He yeah. said that was the worst thing that could be made. It had to be something that felt different, that pushed things on. And he was relied upon because he had this science background. You know, he'd done an electronic engineering degree and then gone to film school. So he was he was trusted. He was absolutely trusted.
2: The bomb drops, what, 40, 50 minutes 46 in? 46
4: minutes, 30, I don't know. Um, and, <laughs> it's in the piece, I can't remember. And, and it's, um, uh, yeah, it feels a very long time.
2: And the rest of the film really shows in kind of... Scientific accuracy, what the what the fallout from that event would be.
4: He'd done so much research, McJackson. He'd spent a year doing research. He'd um, he had a list of like forty five to fifty experts that he talked to. When he was talking to me on the phone about the film, you know, um, he was he'd done lots of um, he'd gone to the first ever climate change conference, interestingly, in nineteen eighty three, where the idea of the nuclear winter was first discussed. Um, he was very much reading the re- writings of Carl Sagan and um, people like that around the time, you know the people who were pioneering this kind of thinking but yeah it's it, it, those first 46 minutes feel very slow and then but you're not halfway through the film at that point and again you get this um um these long scenes you know just very long very quiet apart well apart from kind of a quietly whirling wind um and Mainly, you're following around um, Karen Meagher, uh, who plays Ruth, who is the girl um, from the couple at the beginning of the film, um, Ruth and Jimmy, who are basically, you know, heavy petting in a car, and um, she gets pregnant, and are they going to get they're going to get married? And there's this domestic drama, but um, after the bomb we we never see jimmy do we see last see jimmy running we assume we'll see him again at some point. we never see
3: him he's you know that's what really struck me about it that it doesn't it doesn't lean back on the sort of idea of friendships and trench humor and muddling through that you'd usually associate with a film about war so obviously mm. your, your house gets destroyed yeah. you cling to those that you know you muddle through and you follow a kind of group of people making a new life or something it's totally relentless isn't it the moment yeah. the bomb job drops Everything is gone. And you have people who are talking about, um, you know, curtains and dinner and stuff, suddenly having to sit next to dead bodies. And yeah. what really struck me about it was that the dialogue just drops. I mean Karamega yeah, doesn't speak. She doesn't speak. It's like mental illness has just, you know, destroyed her instantly. And she's just quiet and walking around like this kind of figure in this ravaged landscape. And that's it for the whole thing. The scene film. that always sticks with me um,
4: is when she's just looking around and there's this woman holding a baby who's obviously dead and just staring at her. And it's just absolutely chilling. And one thing I found out during writing the piece was Mick Jackson's wife was pregnant with her first child (laughs) during the making of it. And interestingly, when the wind blows, which I also mention in this piece, which I know you talked about on a previous podcast, um, at the end of it, it's dedicated to the children that were born during the making of that. So these are people who are new parents Mm. thinking of the next generation. I think that's a really important part of the protest behind the film, really.
2: Although some aspects of of the film naturally feel quite dated, I was I was amazed in a way by how much they achieved with what special effects yeah. they could pull together. Because they do try to render what it would be like to to be in a in a major city after a however many megaton blast mm. this is. So you've got raging fires, you've got piles of rubble, and then you've got really. Grotesque and convincing skin makeup as well. Yeah. How did how did they go about?
4: So that was a, a classic, um, you know, almost like BBC techniques. Um, I interviewed Rita May, who's the mother of Jimmy. Who she screams for. She realizes her younger son isn't with them when they're making the shelter. And she screams Michael, and the blast goes off she had a face covered in gelatin and bran flakes which she was like i don't know i met um, i met her up in sheffield i went up to sheffield and i looked at it there's a famous scene where you see the moor the shopping quarter in, in sheffield everybody running about and panicking and Woolworths blowing up i was amused that Woolworths now has regeneration billboards on it um but uh, you know obviously Woolworths is long gone but um i met her around the corner because she was doing something for radio sheffield uh, uh, in the bbc and, yeah, she's like, oh, that makeup, it was horrible. Horrible <laughs> oh, it was. Um, she's 75, she's still on TV regularly. And as I say in the piece, you know, the fact that you re- vaguely recognise all these faces makes it even yeah. more scary. But, uh, yeah, they used a lot of brown flakes and gelatin. Karen Meager mentioned to me, you know, going into work, you know, at the beginning of the day, and there'd be a, line, a rail of clothes, which has just been blowtorched. <laughs> um, Do you know how
3: they did the bomb itself? Because even that was very effective.
4: So they filmed this, um, the... Uh, The scene in the Moore Quarter. Mick Jackson remembers it was very early in the morning. He didn't couldn't. Pinpoint precisely when And the bomb going off Is stock footage You know just juxtaposing That with stock footage The houses blowing up There was a street There was a terrace street Which which was earmarked For demolition And they basically Asked Sheffield City Council You know Can we we do it it? Can we (laughs) do it Yeah But Sheffield City Council Gave all the extras For the film And part of the reason It was set in Sheffield Was that Sheffield Had recently declared Itself a nuclear free zone And so Obviously there's A Barry Hines link as well Him being from Yorkshire So all those elements Just came together Really naturally Also, you know, Sheffield's the centre of the country, industry, you know, so it's geographical location in the middle of Britain. They
2: sort of justify in the film why they've chosen Sheffield as the location, don't they? They say these are the things that... Would be of strategic importance to Absolutely. a nuclear hit, you know. Um, industry, um, there's a military base near, somewhere nearby, isn't mm, there? Yeah, the, RA, um, the yeah. first bomb goes off yeah. of
4: the RAF base, and also not having it in London, I think, has more of an impact. Definitely, yeah. You know, you also have the, the class element that runs through threads. That's really interesting. You know, if we have a working class Jimmy and middle class Ruth, so sort of get together, and then there's these tensions about that, and you know, the mum, the middle-class mum, you know, kind of knitting for the baby. And, you know, later on, well, they don't come out of it very well. Mm. They kind of go into their, their proper shelter in their house because Jimmy's family just make mattresses against the wall. You know, they, yeah. they, they, don't, they, they don't last very long either.
3: But, and there's um, also a class thing in the, the wartime controllers in their local oh, uh, government bunkers who are saying, yes. well, what, what's the point of giving food to people who are going to die anyway? And I just thought it was uh, just as almost as chilling as the blast how quickly the infrastructure of the country goes to shit yeah. and the the roads are going to be jammed you know there's there's no electricity there's no phone lines and mm. the same as with when the wind blows there's a sense of no one is going to help you there's no one out there yeah. who's going to actually pick up any of these pieces yeah, it, it was like the nuclear apocalypse taken to its absolute conclusion i mean even language kind of gets destroyed at the end no one's i think <laughs> no that's why speaking in an obvious way absolutely you know it
4: made me think as well the last section of um russell Hoban's ridley walker which was published in the late 70s in which um it's written in this language which is um you know you, you don't realize when you start reading it but then you it's kind of post-apocalypse and language is broken down it feels medieval
3: and you know that that was in the ether as well mm. so that's interesting but did, um, did it have any backlash in terms of you know things? For instance, we talked about Ghostwatch on the podcast a few months ago, that that was seen as a, a sort of very tasteless, bad move by the BBC. Did it, you know, the threads must have frightened an awful lot of people. Was there any kind of, did they have to go on bite back and defend themselves or anything? Well, I, I think because it was part of a dedicated night um, that
4: uh, was dedicated to looking at nuclear war. So the threads was, uh broadcast in September 1984. There was a programme after it called The Eighth Day, which is also another documentary. Um, and then there was a panel, a political panel after it, um, which had Robin Cook on it and a couple of other people discussing the issues. So, And it had been on the cover of Radio Times that week. Mm. Um, and so it had been flagged up. So that kind of avoided the surprise factor, I guess. So people knew that they were going to be watching something bleak. Yeah. Um, yeah, Mick Jackson went on Pebble Mill at 1 the next day with a beeper on his belt because his wife was due any day to have their baby. <laughs> if anything can bring on Labour, it's watching. Um, but... Um, you know, um, and he couldn't remember the details of that. And it's one of those things that just lost in the mists of time, sadly. But um, you know, obviously, there was response. The BBC were being very responsible about the broadcast of it, which I think, again, maybe going back to the war game in 1965, the fact that there was this shame, Mick Jackson said, that they didn't broadcast that because of the responsibility and the worry that an old lady would throw us off under a bus after watching mm. it. You know, they, it was handled very very well you know um, wasn't there somebody in the the government at the time who'd said we'd, we'd rather you didn't like yeah yeah, yeah absolutely <laughs> and that's why it wasn't so there was that weight of responsibility um but it was you know it um the one thing that everybody seemed to say you know, i was asking them you know what was the response what was the response and you know it's just like you know. Nobody called me or said anything. There was just this silence. You know, Mick Jackson said every time he'd done anything on the BBC, you know, the phone would ring at the end. But he said nobody called him, and he was like, "Oh, that's a bit weird." And then he realised why when he spoke to his friends later. They said, "I just, you know, I was just sitting there, kind of yeah. shell shocked, yeah. really."
3: <laughs> For anybody who's not seen it, um, which is a lot of people, I imagine we'd never seen it before. It's actually being reissued on DVD. Yeah, this is part, beginning of April. This
2: is this is part of a sort of growing. You know, resurgence of these uh, of these Cold War era um, artifacts, isn't it? When the Wind Blows was was reissued, Threads is is coming back in DVD on DVD in April. I don't know whether it's just a kind of trick of timing, in that the right people are coming to the right age, or or whether it is genuinely that it's chiming with a kind of with a political moment in which we're thinking we're starting to think about these things again.
4: I I think it must be in some respects, and definitely. Well, Threads was first put out by an American company, Severin Films, which does lots of, you know, slasher and horror things, actually, which I think is interesting because it definitely uses horror movie tropes to, yeah. to kind of And get the, the new reissue across. is a horror company, isn't it? We yes, that, yeah, that is Severin. Oh, yeah. That's, yeah. that's Severin. Yeah. Severin. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Simply Media yeah. in the yeah. UK, put yeah. yeah. out their stuff. But um, they've added some, like, Karen Meagher's done a commentary, which is extra for the UK, and uh, Mick Jackson has done one as well. But, mm. um, yeah, kind of, I bet when it was first on the table, the resonance wasn't as you know, profound as it mm. seems
2: to be. Now. <laughs> well, you can read um, Jude's piece in the New Statesman in the in the next week or so. Um, Jude, thanks so much for coming in to join us. Thank you.
4: Thank
1: you. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost fifty pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.
0: As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either.
2: So, Kate, we went to see I, Tonya last night. Um, Ryan Gilby's reviewed it in in this week's New Statesman. It's based on a true story, which I didn't know this story. And I discovered that when Margot Robbie, who plays the lead character, read the script, she also didn't realise wow. it was a true story. She's Australian, right? Yeah, she's Australian.
0: Yeah.
2: Can you just briefly tell us the,
3: the yeah, story? Yeah, so the story of um, Tonya Harding, who was a um, poor uh, American girl who became obsessed with figure skating from very young age, kind of three or four years old, very controlling mother, sort of trailer park people, as they would say. Um, she grew up
2: in Portland, She Grew right? up
3: in Portland, and uh, you know, there's a scene in the film where she's told that she needs a fur coat for ice skating, so you see her shooting rabbits and stitching the pelts together to make one. I don't know whether that was a tweaking of the truth, but it was quite an effective way of showing that she was not cut of the same cloth as these gazelle-like perfect uh, bright toothed women skaters that she was in the in the arena of. And throughout the film, there's a sense that she is not getting the scores that she should be for her incredible triple axles and her jumps, partly because she doesn't fit the bill of what America wants a female figure, figure skater to be. Um, so it's a class film. And it's also I was thinking it's kind of a horrible story told in an entertaining manner because mm. it's full of domestic violence and beatings. But it's shot in a way that, in one sense, it feels quite dated. I don't know if you've ever seen To Die For by Gus Van Sant, early 90s film, mockumentary. So you've got these kind of colourful characters Spleen, spleen splits into, and somebody says, "You know, oh, it didn't actually happen like that. It happened like this." So it's quite a playful way that it's made, but also it's a way that was fashionable at the time when the Itonia story was happening. So in a way, it's kind of quite a nice bit of history that they filmed it in that early '90s style. I think.
2: So it's, just tell us what's the um, what's the key incident because the, the, there is this obviously this rivalry, but then the reason why it became such a huge news story is
3: the key incident is the the kneecapping of Tonya Harding's key um, rival, Nancy Kerrigan, by a stooge hired or suggested by her husband, who was a violent man towards Tonya himself, and this kneecapping brought about the fall of her career because she ended up going, getting blacklisted for it forever and her bloke went to prison.
2: The form is, it made me realize how much I like that kind of to camera form. Actually, I, I haven't seen To Die For, shamefully, but it made me think of uh, A Cock and Bull Story, which I love and like early Sex in the City and yeah. uh, stuff like that. Also like the first season of House of Cards, which is great, which does that kind of Shakespearean thing of just uh, addressing the audience. I heard um, Margot Robbie, Talking about this on, on the radio recently, and um, she's actually a co-producer on the film. So her and whoever else it was, the script writer, were actually sort of auditioning directors. The thing they said to all of the directors is, how are you going to do these domestic violence scenes? Because as you say, that's a really strong, dark th- thread that runs throughout the film. Um, she has this very, very abusive relationship with her husband, Jeff Galuli, 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 Galuli. Sebastian Stan. Yeah, it's played by Sebastian Stan. Like many abusive relationships, she keeps coming back to him, and it's 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 played brutally, realistically in a way. But the director, um, whose name I don't have written down,
3: Damn it. <laughs> oh, um, Craig. Uh,
2: fact check fail. Craig, Craig something. Yeah. Craig. <laughs> We're on first name terms with the director. We can't He's remember Australian. all the names. We can't, can't we. remember all the names. <laughs> We're not primary school teachers. <laughs> Craig said, "Look, I would shoot them." In this very real, um, you know, uncompromising way. But then, because you can't have a two-hour film of of uh, domestic violence, I'll, I'll break them with these. I'll, a, I'll have um, I'll have Tonia Harding fighting back as good as she's given. Certainly in the scenes with her with her husband. And B, I'll have her addressing the audience and breaking the fourth wall. And that's you and know it, part yeah. of the reason they went with this director. Yeah, um, it's quite a bold move, but it it it
3: it works it works it's also got this kind of rollicking relentless soundtrack of really brilliant kind of you know 70s rock like super tramp and stuff and it's just kind of we were thinking about the budget they must have spent on this yeah. soundtrack because it's huge it's just it kind of overtakes the entire thing sometimes it's almost too much you yeah. think oh it, there isn't really a moment for that song but here you know, hear yeah. the opening bars or something
2: yeah it, it gives it it gives it a zing and also it kind of highlights um you know part of the difference between Tonya and the other contestants is, you know, she comes on to, I don't know, ZZ Top or Bad Company or whatever, when they're all doing, I don't know what they're doing, Sugar Plum Fairy or something, yeah. you know. So so she's very much um, pitched as the as the outsider.
3: It made me think about most of my skating knowledge comes from Blades of Glory, yes. the Will Ferrell movie. Um, and his character, Chaz Michael Michaels, is seen, I can't remember what he's, is it I Love Rock and Roll or something, his opening song on the ice in that, oh or We Will Rock You or yeah. something like that. But basically, um, there are shades of that um, that style and little elements of what the brilliant Tonya Harding did because you get these sort of random um, arm movements that just seem to kind of go with the beat rather than to be about yeah. the skating. Yeah. And of course, Chaz Michael Michaels is basically just stomping on the ice. Yes. He's just like moving one yes, leg side to side and everyone goes mad for it. But I love the idea that when she comes back into, she has lots of, uh, you know, rises and falls with her career and at one point her coach says to her you know you do have a second chance no more heavy metal no more blue um nail, nail varnish polish, yeah and i like the idea that somehow she would still have got away with demanding that heavy metal was going to be her music mm. when she went out there you'd think mm. there'd be enough of a kind of structure of coaches around her to say no you have to be dancing to the nutcracker <laughs> what's interesting no, is be Joan Jett.
2: i mean the film is based on into the, the script was based on interviews with all the real characters so everyone sort of participated in this and at, at, at the beginning they have a, a text on the screen saying this is based on wildly contradictory accounts so um especially around the central event of the film they have had to kind of negotiate between different you know contradictory things that they've been told do you think they do you think they managed that did they did they fudge it or did you get enough of a um, a sense of what happened to kind of satisfy you? I
3: got a sense. The only thing that I wasn't sure about was how much she had known of the planned attack, um, whether she was aware that, I don't know, whether whether the kind of violent part of mm. the of the kind of uh, action against Kerrigan was something that she'd been aware of. But to me, it helped not being sure because it just gave a certain depth to her character and slipperiness because she's not an easy person. Mm. Every time she gets something wrong on the ice, she blames her skates for mm. it or her laces or something. She's always going up to the judges and saying, you know, well, in this film, she says, suck my dick to the judges. She's she's troubled because of this awful mother that she has. So she's always blaming other people for everything that happens to her. So in a way, you kind of want that ambiguity about how much did she know. And also once the attack has taken place, I don't know if you notice this, but she and um, her husband rise to this kind of, very kind of sexy power couple who are going out and doing these press conferences and looking like, nothing can touch them Mm. at the very point where actually you'd think they'd be trying to skulk around a bit and apologize because of this event that happened to kerrigan but they're just like that's when they come into their own Mm. so you wonder then maybe she did know i don't know she says she didn't but
2: she does um yeah she does learn to sort of take control of the situation briefly although it then kind of subsumes her again the relationship with the mother is like it's almost like something out of Stephen King or Hitchcock like it's a horror movie relationship in some ways because the mother is so abusive. I mean she from from the age of 4 she's she's grinding Tonya into the ground because her justification being that that's what will make her perform the best. Um, she says
3: mom you you made me believe that I only skate well when my life is shit. Yeah. I mean, that's an incredible thing to put on a child. <laughs> you have to be unhappy. You have to be beaten.
2: Yeah. Well, be I want. I want. You know, the, there's a, there's a, there's an incident where she's beaten with a hairbrush, which is kind of widely confirmed. And then the really shocking incident in the film, which maybe I won't reveal, but it's certainly much more than a hairbrush that gets that gets thrown at at Tonya Harding. And you get these great cutaways to. Sort of fake interviews with Lavona, Lavona. they not Lavona. Mother oh, played by Alison Janey, um, and they're kind of in, almost like. Um, oh, what are the? What's the sort of uh, Christopher Guest? The Spinal Tap. Yeah, you know, it's, yeah, yeah, it feels yeah. like something out of that. She's Another nineties. Car- yeah, documentary, she's, a yeah. Out of that. she's got a parrot on her shoulder, and she's uh, <laughs> and an
3: oxygen tank. Yeah.
2: Yes. <laughs> 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 reminiscing. but Margot. We should say something about Margot Robbie's performance because it is sort of incredible, isn't
0: it?
3: Yeah, I think there's a there's a scene. Um, before one of her final um, competitions where she's trying to apply makeup and she's also crying at the same time. And it's an extended scene of what she can do to her face to pull that kind of skating grin. And then it just falls again and tears come out and it goes on for about 10, 15 seconds. I really thought that, I mean, I, didn't, I know that um, Alison Janey got Best actress, uh, best Supporting Actress Oscar for Lavona's part, but actually I didn't think there was much. Nominated for, yeah. I, I thought she'd yeah. won it. Do you, mean, do you mean BAFTA rather
2: than... Oscar? BAFTA, sorry. Yes. <laughs> yeah,
3: yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, she's won it. Okay, she won cool. it. Well, I didn't um, think there was like that much acting going on yeah. compared to um, Margot Robbie. And I think that particularly at the end, there's an amazing um, juxtaposition of uh, her greatest skating moment. And the boxing that she actually turned to afterwards, and the idea that you know you, you kind of think maybe an ex skater' is going to go into dressage or yeah. something like that, but you see with her the, the kind of primal nature that she has that actually it would translate to fighting or yeah. skating, and it's just it's very, very effective.
2: The face scene is um, is amazing, and it reminds me of a uh, one of my drama teachers at school whose only um, instruction was. Try acting more with your face, um, which I think we found infuriating, but I think, um, I think Margot Robbie really pulls it off here. It just made me want to say that um, although Margot Robbie trained for sort of three or four months um, in terms of like getting some of the skating skills for this, actually how they filmed the serious skating, the kind of the big jumps and leaps and all that was by capturing her face through two different face replacement techniques so there's this amazing (laughs) vfx company and you can watch a clip of this online um so some of it is traditional green screen some of it is is margot robbie sitting in this kind of weird sort of space dome where they capture her face from all from 360 degrees all around her and then it took them three months to then place that face on the stunt doubles wow. throughout the, perfor- wow. the performance. So yeah,
3: so it's not just the old thing of filming the legs and then the head not. going at a different no, speed. No, it's, so,
2: yeah. it's so sophisticated, and you never there's no um, oh. there's no doubt in your mind that that's um, that's Tonya that's Margot. And the skating um, seems extremely
3: effective because she's got she's got a combination of grace and real rawness mm. and speed, mm. um, and she's so fast. And it seems to be filmed very close up, and then at the end in the credits they play footage of the real Tonya Harding, and it's it's identical. And it's just, you know, it's the it's funny because the triple axel is the um, famous move and you think, well oh, what's that really about? And of course, they twirl around three times in the air and land. And it reminded me again of Blades of glory What is it called in that? The move they try and attempt. The flying lotus system. <laughs> yeah. That's only been attempted in North Korea. Yeah. And the problem is that often one of the skaters can have their head severed by the other person's blade. So again, it's this kind of miss- mythology of this, this move that only you can do.
2: Well, indeed, I can't remember if I already told you this, but the... They could not find a stunt uh, ice skater to perform the triple axel, so that is performed through CGI. There are what? only there are only two skaters around who can do it at the moment. They're both in they're both in Olympic training and couldn't risk you know injury or extra. So it's you know I think something like six people have done it since Margot Robbie. So contrary to most other sports where you expect like incremental advances over the years as as like training and drugs and equipment gets better she she was you know she was at the very pinnacle
3: you wonder why they didn't just use the real footage of her yeah, doing it and yeah. put margot robbie's yeah. face on <laughs> it is it's worth what because i just thought you know what's the big deal about that move but it is interesting it's the speed of it and they show it in slow motion and it is basically a matter of twirling around three, three times, times before yeah. your foot touches yeah. the ice again so it's worth seeing for the triple axis
2: so i tonya is in cinemas from this friday whenever yeah. that is 23rd you work it out 23rd <laughs> For this week's non-anniversary, our um, non-significant anniversary of a cultural event, we are. What are we celebrating, Kate?
3: We are 22 years to the week since Michael Jackson was rudely interrupted by Jarvis Cocker at the 1996 Brits by Jarvis getting on stage briefly and shaking his cord-clad bum at the audience.
2: So I watched, I rewatched the clip last night, and um, it's quite amazing. Jarvis sort of gets up on stage. This is Michael Jackson is performing "Earth Song," dressed in rags, wind blowing through his hair. All these sort of uh, street urchin children clustered around him. Jarvis is backstage, decides this is all a bit kind of pompous, and that he needs to to puncture it, and uh, gets up on stage. Clearly, once he's up on stage doesn't really know what to do. So he sort of trots along the stage. Then he does this sort of, bends over and does this sort of wafting gesture with his hands from behind his bum. Then he trots over to the other end of the stage, lifts up his cardigan, puts it down. And then the camera pans out and you think he's run off stage, but actually he makes his exit via, there's a sort of... um, piece of stage stage work pyramid at the back and he, he he trots up to the top of the pyramid and is briefly illuminated in front of a uh, a big circular screen, you know, like ET style, showing you know starving Ethiopian children, and <laughs> then trots back down bit. again. I know it's amazing. That's even better yeah, than the ash shaking. I know. I know. It's very, very brief. Um, was
3: he was he manhandled off by a security guards?
2: He, he no, he was sort of ineffectually chased by a couple of the dancers <laughs> <laughs> and the children. One of which, one of the dancers, accidentally gets caught in the. Um, in the sort of wind machine and has his <laughs> a, has his costume blown up over his head so you see his pants.
3: Oh, possibly um, the last time the Brits were interesting. Yeah,
2: it was, I mean, yeah. I also watched the, <laughs> another period piece, I also watched the interview that um, Chris Evans did with him a couple of days after on TFI Friday. Um, Jarvis is like down the line from his studio in, in um, from his uh, backstage before some, some gig up north. And um, you forget TFI Friday, like, every every minute and a half, there's just a cheer from a crowd of people drinking giant pints of Guinness. <laughs> so <laughs> like, so the, the tabloids were very um, upset and very pro-Jackson mm. and anti-Jarvis. The TFI audience were, were very, very keen. Interestingly, when Tracy Thorne wrote a piece for us about, about the Brits, she actually said that, looking back on it, she kind of felt uncomfortable about it and that it actually touched on some of the more kind of boorish laddish like unpleasant aspects of yeah that this of
3: course is the time that in the collective memory indie reigned but tracy was sitting on a table with bjork and tricky and various other and people massive attack, yeah. and massive attack and had the thought hmm i think this is where the interesting music's being made not over there on blur's table and pulp's table and oasis's yeah. table so it was it was you know even though it's felt like a kind of a protest against jackson's overweening pride at the time mm. it was actually quite a boorish disruptive thing to do as well so it's funny how it's kind of gone down I, I remember watching it and just finding it yeah a mixture of amusing and vaguely uncomfortable
2: yeah and um the one anecdote that's worth repeating from the, the chris evans interview is that um bob mortimer from uh, reeves and mortimer vic and bob who used to work for peckham council in the legal department when Jarvis was taken to the police station because he was arrested after this. <laughs> yeah, he was arrested. He was he was in the He, he was, was in arrested. the local police station at three in the morning. Yeah, because they claimed that he'd like assaulted a child on stage
3: oh right he, that's like yeah, ironic
2: mortimer, isn't it <laughs> um but um but, but mortimer apparently accompanied him and offered to like speak in his defense Did but then was so, so waylaid by policemen policeman asking for his autograph that he didn't really get anywhere meanwhile outside sort of neil morrissey and martin clunes are staging a mini free jarvis protest so this is really the stuff of of brit pop legend isn't it?
0: um
2: so, <laughs> 22, years, 22 ago years ago this ago, week yeah Thank you for listening to this episode of the Back Half Podcast. We'll be back in a fortnight. Thank you to Jude Rogers for coming in. We've been edited by Caroline Crampton. Do get in touch if you've got any suggestions for non anniversaries or indeed anything else. I'm on Twitter. NS Podcast is on Twitter. I'm not. Kate's not on Twitter. She's unreachable. You can write to her. Via PO Box three nine two. No, you can't. But you don't can't even, send it to the you can't other Kate even write to...
3: There are two Kate Mossens apart from me. One is a stylist, and the other one is a kind of eco warrior from Winnipeg. So don't ever tweet them because and they, they get, get
2: enraged. Upset. Do they get upset? Well, have they, they ever been in touch? Patient, with They're very
3: patient, but they just, i mean—they never get in touch with me. But yeah, they do. They do have to field it. Sometime.
2: They're wading through the fan mail.
3: We will be playing you out with the the wonderful tones of Pistol Jazz and their tune "Godspeed."